everybody and welcome to the Reading Materials Podcast, a podcast where two friends read a book and every couple of weeks get together to discuss the book on the show. My name is Cory, And my name is Lucia. And today is a very special episode because we have a guest with us. Yes, it is our season five finale. So today's guest is Madina. Welcome, Madina. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much (laughs) for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So we usually have like a brief introduction to our guest. So tell us a little bit about who you are and how you know us. Of course, happy to. Uh, So hi, I'm Madina. I am originally from Abkhazia, which is on the um, just between the Caucasus Mountains and the Black Sea. But I grew up in Slovakia with Lucia, actually. Uh, we went to school together. We know each other since we were about six years old, <laughs> which I will not betray how many decades we know each other now. Um, <laughs> and uh, when Lucia was getting married, uh, I met Cory at her wedding and, and pre-wedding shenanigans. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. Those were some... Fun times. I saw Madina a few weeks ago because I went to Slovakia for a couple of days and we met up after, gosh, three years because we hadn't seen each other since the wedding. And I was very happy to find out that Madina is still a very avid reader. So I invited her to join us on the podcast for this final episode on our classics season. Do you read a lot of classics, Madina, in, in general? I guess I used to read a lot of classics. I've now moved on to kind of more contemporary literature. That sounded really poncy, but you know what I mean. But uh, just to give a bit of background, like, well, actually, Lucia was the first person to actually lend me my first books in English. So we did several several rounds of of series um, and then read Harry Potter at the same time when we were 11. So... You know, it was, it was great. That that's that's kind of that kind of reading relationship was established very early on. Yeah, Corey and I also bonded over Harry Potter. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, do we want to get straight into it, or is there anything else, Corey, that we want to ask Madina before we start? No, I don't think so. I was just going to comment that you did it the right way around, where you started with the classics and then went contemporary, whereas we have got to now and be like, mm, maybe we should read some classics. <laughs> Let me educate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, yeah, because the last time I read a classic was probably in school, or I maybe I went through a phase during uni when I was like, I should probably read some classic literature, which is, you know, the right kind of literature to be reading but it didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, funnily enough, classics was a, a non-negotiable in my family. I, I come from a family of avid readers and obviously with the libraries to, that go with that. And the reason why I say funnily enough is because the author and the book that we are going to be reading today is something that was, let's say, imposed uh, by my grandmother, my, my late grandmother Ooh. now, um, she oh. was a huge fan, and um, I've been reading these books since uh, since I was little. Amazing! That's amazing. Yeah. Ah, uh, I wish I could bond with my grandmother or my or my mom. 
with reading, but like they read from time to time, but it's not really a passion anymore. My mom used to read a lot when she was little, I guess as most people do when they're kids and teenagers, but she doesn't really have the time now or she doesn't really want to read that much now anyway. I mean, my mom just doesn't have enough time, but um, Granny, before she passed away, she was just, you know, one of those people who just was constantly with a book, would not fall asleep unless she's read a book. And towards the end of her years, she just got into the habit of rereading her favorite books. And, um, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was lovely. And being able to read those with her at the same time and, and see what she liked about them, it was yeah, it was quite mm. special. Mm, That's nice. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Glad you had that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So that being said, what did you choose for our episode today? So I thought let's go with something brief, but 100% classic. We're going with the Agatha Christie book, And Then There Were None. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know this name, it, it came out under several names. One of them is an unmentionable. Um, and one of the other iterations was, um, I think, Ten Little Indians. And then there was Ten Little Soldiers. And eventually, modern, uh, modern days, it's called And Then There Were None. So before we go any further, I think I'll just put in a spoiler alert now mm-hmm. in case we forget. So... We will be spoiling the whole book, including who the murderer ended up being. So if any of our listeners have not read the book and don't want it to be spoiled, now is the time to stop, read it, and then come back and listen. So we're safe now. We can say whatever we want. (laughs) But before we dive in, do you have a brief uh, bio for the author? Yes, I've got, well, brief. (laughs) Now that's a challenge. Okay, so for those who don't know, Agatha Christie is a particularly famous uh, writer in the sense of she's hugely prolific. She's one of the most published and translated authors in the world. In fact, this book, and then there were none, is, I think, the most translated. Let me, sir, let me just double check Wikipedia on this one. Yeah, I think, I think, and then there were none is the most famous, like most translated and, and reprinted book. Agatha Christie also wrote a famous play called The Mousetrap, which was, if not for COVID, the longest running play in the world, Hmm. uh, which incidentally I did see in London. And uh, Agatha in her her own stead was uh, a bit of a mystery in a sense where... You know, she, she grew up into an affluent family. She's had her trials and tribula- tribulations, et cetera, et cetera. She got married young. And at one point during her life, her husband decided to leave her for his much younger, uh, I, I believe, secretary. And she was already, Classic. yeah, of course. And she was actually <laughs> already an established author at the time. So she was actually already world, world renowned. And nobody quite knows exactly what happened because she never disclosed it in any of her autobiographies. But people think she might have had a bit of a mental breakdown and she decided to disappear for about 10 days after her husband left her. Nobody could find her. There was a, the, the media went into a frenzy. People were looking for her. Uh, and then she was found and it was alleged that she just had some kind of, um, like 
microamnesia of some sort and that she just didn't mm-hmm. remember herself for 10 days. But others, more cynical types, believe that she was hoping that her husband would be accused of her murder or something of that, <laughs> something of like. <laughs> so yeah, she was a bit of a drama queen. Uh, and therefore, <laughs> her books indeed are very, very dramatic. This one in particular. Mm-hmm. And I suppose most people would know her because she wrote Hercule Poirot as the main character in a series of yes. murder mysteries. I guess they were. Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple... Um, mm. And this particular one actually doesn't have a detective, which is also special, mm. quite special. Mm. Yeah. Corey, have you read anything by her before? No, I haven't. But I was saying to you, Lucia, that actually the the island that features in this book was like our local beach when I was growing up as a teenager in Devon. So the fact that I haven't ever read any is like really weird because it's it's such a, you know, huge fact about that part of the world and the estate that her and her second husband bought uh, in Devon was also really close to where I grew up, although I've never been there. Who knows? So, yeah, I was really excited when we... Well, when Lucia told me that this is what we were going to be doing, because I was like, oh, yes, always meant to and never quite got round to it. So now you've got the excuse. It's the same for me. Mm. Yeah, I've never read anything by her either. I mean, as you said, she is so famous. I think everyone has at least heard of her. But for some reason, I've never gotten around to reading anything by her. I might have seen a few episodes of a TV adaptation at some point. But other than that. Nothing. So you neither of you have ever seen TV adaptations of this particular book either? No. Nope. How did you get this? <laughs> How did you let this happen? I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked too because, okay, we'll get into it, but like it was a good book. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So I'm shocked that I haven't read anything by her and maybe I'll pick something up after this because it was quite easy reading, but... That's, you know, skipping ahead. Could you tell me or remind me, when did she live? Early 20th century. Let me just double check the dates. Yeah, she was born in 1890. Mm -hmm. And then she was prolific during the 1920s, the 1930s and post-World War. Actually, she spent a lot of time uh, working in pharmacies during the war periods. And that's where she learned a lot about the kind of the, the poisons and the, the, the kind of things that kill people in her books. Hmm. And then she died in 1960, sorry, 1976. Um, and I think okay. she, uh, bless her, I think she actually had uh, either Alzheimer's or dementia. So she didn't really, she wasn't really herself towards the end. So quite recent, that, well, relatively speaking, quite recent compared to some of the other authors we've covered this season Mm. (laughs) yeah cool is there anything else Corey that you want to add uh yes I did want to address the elephant in the room which is the title (laughs) because I I don't want to be accused of you know only talking about the good things do you know much about the background to the title either of you okay Medina is nodding yes So I'm going to kick it off and say that the book was originally called Ten Little Niggers, 
which was the title of the poem that is used throughout the book. And it was later changed to Ten Little Soldiers. So I'm imagining that both of that the editions that all of us read, the poem is called Ten Little Soldiers. And the last line of the poem is, and then there were none, which is why it was mm-hmm. then changed to that title. So do you want to tell us about it, Medina? Yeah, sure. I mean, the poem is very old, you know, post-colonial uh, era. And I guess in those times, post-colonial times, they didn't really care about, you know, being politically correct and actually didn't really care about being super racist. And um, the poem itself, uh, which is the premise of the story in a way, is about these 10 little soldiers, let's say, or these 10 little person persons going somewhere and then each round kind of one of them dies, essentially, you know, these days we call it as, as, as soldiers. Before that, it was it was the the un- ugly word. Before, mm-hmm. I guess it's just one of those really horrible post-colonial things where they mm-hmm. thought it was okay to use uh, this kind of language. These days, I, I you know I refuse to even say the word. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I I think this last iteration and then there were none is actually the best title for the book and I'm surprised it was never even uh suggested at the beginning in the in the 1920s I think when it was written or 30s mm. mm-hmm. yeah the poem was adapted from 10 little indians which was also sort of a, a racist poem it's like a counting song that they used in America relating uh, referring to native americans and then it was adapted in the late 1800s in Britain to use the N-word instead. But sort of, I did some brief research into the etymology of the word, uh, which was not particularly comfortable. <laughs> and um, it has really never been anything but a racist slur. So so there was, there was there's sort of no way that it could have been misunderstood as just being like another word that we use to refer to people with dark skin. And I was kind of interested to see, like, was Agatha Christie herself overtly racist? And although there's nothing that is particularly like, yes, she was definitely a racist or, you know, she participated in groups or this, that and the other. Apparently, having not read any of her other books, I can't really comment on it. But apparently a lot of her books did refer to... Black people, Asians, Italians, Native Americans, Arab and Jewish people in derogatory ways uh, to the point where publishers were given permission to change them so that they were less less derogatory. So I just wanted to put that in there. I don't want to ruin one of your favourite authors for you, <laughs> but there's definitely sort of an undercurrent of within her writing. It doesn't look like there was ever anything within her actual behaviour that I could find, but it is something to be aware of when going through Agatha, Agatha Christie books. That maybe sometimes some of the references may not have been as savoury, and that a lot of them will have been edited out because it's just it is not acceptable in this day and age to have those words um, used. Indeed, and it's not just 
the, the, the specifically, for example, racial slurs and things like that. Mm. But it's also the fact where, you know, the most famous character, Hercule Poirot, he's a Belgian. Mm. And she uses a lot of stereotypes throughout her books, especially when she talks about him. Uh, you mm. know, like st- stereotypes about countries and, and nationalities, even within Europe. And it's done, I guess, to add a bit of fun and, and make it sound comical. Mm. But at, at certain times, it does make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. And sometimes you, you know, you, you end up asking yourself, was this necessary for the, you know, for, to continue this story in, in, in any way? And no, um, many, mm. many, many cases, I would say no. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know how to excuse it. There is no excuse. It's just the way she wrote. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know that there is. I don't know that it necessarily needs to be excused in a way. Like as long as we acknowledge that it happened and it's been changed now, but we don't pretend it never happened because because then that's just as bad, really, as yeah. leaving it as it was in the first place. And I think also. There's been quite a few books that we've read within this season in particular, which I know that you're at a disadvantage because you've not actually, <laughs> you know, you don't know what we've read. But um, there have been quite a few where it's been quite easy to sit back and go, oh, well, there weren't any women in the in this book because it was written by a man in X, Y, Z year and they just didn't refer to women and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. So I think there is also an element of that of accepting this was like the big Hollywood era and it was mm-hmm. it was all drama and stereotypes and so a lot of it was just accepted at the time yeah. but we accept that it's not acceptable now and therefore you know we can kind of acknowledge it and move on yeah exactly what I find interesting I just google it now is that it was being published using the original title all the way up until 1985 in Mm. the UK. Indeed. And that actually they changed the title for the US edition because it was considered to be too racially loaded for the time. So it was originally published in 1939 and it came out in the US in 1940. And for the US edition, they changed it to And Then There Were None. But in the UK, they continued to publish it with the original title until 1985, which Mm. I find to be quite surprising, you know, how recent that is. I think it's it's quite interesting because I think that was sort of 60 years before, 60 years, 20 years before all of the really sort of the, well, the 60s was when Martin Luther King was around, wasn't it? And sort Mm. of all of the equality movement really really kicked into gear and we just didn't have quite the same thing here because well I don't know why I suppose maybe our population of ethnic minorities was smaller in comparison or maybe I, I don't know it was obviously just less or maybe we were just less progressive in Britain we like to think that we're not but you know, we like to think we're at the forefront of everything, but that's certainly <laughs> not the case. So, yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, the number of scholarly articles that I found, we could discuss it, you know, for three hours and still not be done. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it is interesting. I was shocked as well that it was almost within our lifetimes that it was still being called by the original name. Yeah. I think there's certainly an element of excuse the national stereotype but in you know a lot of british culture 
there's like a, a reticence to mm-hmm. to change something that was, you know, established in the past. And maybe that that was also a, a contributing factor, even though, like like I said before, I I don't even understand why it was this was even chosen as a as a book title in the first place. I don't think it works as well. No. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Agreed. Okay. Well, we've we've started off strong, yes. ladies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we want to add about Agatha Christie? Nope. No. Nope. Okay, so then, Madina, if you could read us the blurb, and then we can finally start discussing this yes. super interesting book. Do I have permission to be super dramatic? Go for it. Always. <laughs> In, within the theme. Okay, so. Ten people each with something to hide and something to fear, are invited to an isolated mansion on Indian Island. Oh, sorry. I think it's actually called uh, something else in the book now. Soldier Island. Soldier Island. By a host who surprisingly fails to appear. On the island, they are cut off from everything but each other and the inescapable shadows of their own past lives. One by one, the guests share the darkest secrets of their wicked pasts. And one by one, they die. (laughs) Which among them is the killer? And will any of them survive? Perfect. Wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. So... Madina, you have been listening, I think, to our podcast yep. for a while, so you know what we're going to ask you next, and that is, out of five stars, how would you rate this book? Well, for me, the book, despite the controversies of the name, etc., it's still a five, um, mm-hmm. a favorite book that I do reread, you know, on occasion, every few years. What about you guys? Excellent. Go ahead, Corey. So I think that I... It probably gets a five from me as well. Ah, wow. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was a little concerned that sometimes when you read books later on that have got loads and loads of hype or are by authors who are so incredibly famous, it it comes as a real letdown because you've got such a weight of expectation behind the reading. But I, I didn't find that at all. I think it really helps that I didn't know anything about it. So I, the ending was not spoiled for me. And therefore, you know, I got to experience that first time reading of a mystery and I got the mystery totally wrong. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I can't wait to hear what, what you thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to round it off with five stars as well. Yay. It did exactly what I wanted it to do. It was a mystery from beginning to end. I wanted so badly to solve it. (laughs) I didn't solve it correctly. So for that reason alone, you know, I think it's worth five stars because I honestly had no idea who did it. And I loved the twist at the end. I thought it was written well enough. Like it was easy to understand. The pacing was really good. It kept you engaged the whole way through. So yeah. Five stars, no question. 
it's certainly a quick read. It's like one of those, you know, like what they put on book covers, like unput downable. Mm. It's one of those. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think it was it was less than 300 pages even. Yeah, it's quite so short. Really fast. Really yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you've um, read about it, but uh, Agatha Christie herself was very proud of this book in particular because the whole kind of idea and the twist uh, has been brewing in her head for a while and it took her uh, some effort to actually come up with how to make it so twisty and unpredictable at the end. And apparently she said that the she met her own expectations, which was the highest achievement that she wanted for the book. So, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. In my edition, I don't know if, if you guys had it, but my edition had a brief introduction by Agatha mm. Christie, which was taken directly from one of her autobiographies. Wow. And she said exactly this, that she wanted to create like a closed house murder mystery. And she really didn't want it to be over the top or, you know, she really wanted people to believe that it was possible that something like this would happen. And yeah, I think she achieved it. Like, I bought it. I can, I can believe it. <laughs> I love that. Full circle. Yeah. So we usually go character by character when we discuss our books. There are quite a few characters. So we might just go through them faster than usual. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to throw this to Corey now. And I let Corey introduce whoever she wants to introduce first. <laughs> okay. So... To give a sort of brief overview of the plot of the book, there are mm -hmm. ten people who end up on Soldier Island, and they've all either been employed by or invited by somebody who they do not know. Um, they've never met in real life, and the people who've been employed, it's all been done sort of through agency work, and they turn up expecting to meet this person, and they just never show up. And so there's you've got your two people on the island who are there as the main sort of caretakers. And so you've got Ethel Rogers and Thomas Rogers, uh, Ethel being the, the cook and general maid, I suppose, and Thomas being the sort of butler and general doer around the place. So I think maybe... Maybe we talk about them as a tandem. Mm -hmm. So they're a married couple and they used to care for an older lady who died of pre-existing illness, basically. And then they got... I, th oh, I can't remember. Were they employed by the agent or they got a letter asking them to join the island and to get all the supplies and everything into it to then expect guests to arrive in August. And so when all of the other guests arrive at the house, they are there to welcome them rather than the owner of the island. They're sort of two salt-of-the-earth people who seem quite harmless. They, I mean, I was quite impressed with how well they were running the island, given that they hadn't had any sort of... <laughs> handover and nobody there to supervise what they were up to but I suppose I suppose that you know they're just people who do their job well yeah have I missed anything no I I think 
One of my favorite things about the way they were both described was kind of my impression of both of them was that they were both very twitchy, like um, jumpy, especially her, Ethel. She was described as being quite jumpy and, and, and kind of nerve wrecked almost or, or, or like scared. And he sounded really jumpy too. So it was, it was really interesting the way she used that kind of language. And when she was describing what they looked like to, to, to kind of continue that, that, that idea of, of them being kind of like a bit, not necessarily fragile. They, they, they weren't fragile, but like, uh, like just stressed. Yeah. I think, uh, especially for her, she was described as always looking like she was terrified whenever. Yeah she was around. I mean, she wasn't around for a long time because, <laughs> spoiler alert, she's the second one to die. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think you've both said everything there is to say about them. I, I don't really have much more to add. I feel like this might be a running theme when we're talking about the characters because because there were so many and the whole story takes place in the span of like three or four days we don't really get to know them very well because they do all die one by one very quickly. Mm. So Mrs. Rogers is only there for the first night and then she's dead by the first morning. And even then, she greets them, she takes the guests to their room and then she helps to set the table and prepare the meal. But then a spooky event happens, which is a gramophone... Uh, basically pl seemingly plays by itself, listing all the guests and their crimes, which is that each one is accused of having killed someone previously to arriving on the island. And this terrifies Mrs. Rogers. She faints, then she's taken up to bed, and she never wakes up, basically. So I don't really have much to add in terms of their character. I did find it a little bit, I say that and now I'm gonna start. I did find it a little interesting, strange, suspicious that Mr. Rogers just got on with everything even after his wife died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same. That was particularly weird, but to be quite frank, having read previous Agatha Christie books and, and especially of that period, it just felt like one of those stiff upper lip things that allegedly mm -hmm. British people do. Like the the mm -hmm. fact that he was a man and he wasn't allowing the death of his own wife to affect him too much. So that that's kind of like not unusual in, in Christie's books when you see that kind of reaction from a man. Okay. And then the other thing I think is that she possibly used this element to keep the drama going of, do we suspect him? Is he the killer? Is he not the killer? You know, like, sh maybe she was just using that to, to, to keep the drama. Would you agree with that, Corey? Yeah, I definitely agree with that, because I definitely did suspect him for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, as I've already said, Mrs. Rogers is the second one to die. Mr. Rogers is the fourth one to die, so he is also not the murderer. I'm trying to think, should we leave the murderer till last? Yes, definitely. Or... Let's leave okay. the murderer till okay, last. Okay, cool. <laughs> so then I might introduce the third character mm -hmm. who was the first to die, 
Where's his name? Here we go. Tony Marston. So Tony is a quite young man. He seems to be quite rich. He drives a really fast car, a really expensive car. He's a not very responsible driver. He drinks alcohol on the way to the island while he's driving. And we find out that he previously had been in a car accident because he hit two children with his car and they both died. But he completely plays this off as not being particularly sad or an important event. Is there anything else you want to add about Tony? Well, my favorite description of him was he was like a Viking god. <laughs> and it was that was the description in my edition. And I just laughed because I just imagined, you know, like one of the Hemsworth brothers. <laughs> Amazing. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, he's he's quite arrogant, isn't he? Hmm. I've just had a thought. We've already mentioned, or you've already mentioned, the gramophone recording, mm -hmm. which gives mm -hmm. out all of these accusations. So mm -hmm. maybe we should also include what the accusation is. Sure. So for Tony Marsden, it's that he killed these two children while recklessly speeding. And for the two Rogers, it's that the old lady that they were caring for, who died of her own illness, that they actually were the cause of her death, and she didn't die of natural causes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We should add that Mr. Rogers is actually the one who set up the, the gramophone, which is why he was also quite suspicious at the beginning yeah. as a character. But he claimed that he was just given instructions on what to do. He didn't know what was on the recording. He was just told that he needs to press play at some point. But... Nevertheless, Tony, despite being a Viking god and <laughs> apparently in top health, is the first person to die. Mm. And he dies by asphyxiation slash choking when he takes a drink that it then turns out was pro most probably poisoned with, was it cyanide? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this a good point to draw this all back to our little... Rhyme? Yeah. I was about to suggest that. Perfect timing. Right. So, Madina, do you want to explain what I'm referring to? Yes, absolutely. So, the, I guess, brilliance of the inhumane murderer uh, was that they decided to keep to the lines of the rhyme of the Ten Little Soldiers. So, essentially, the way the rhyme goes is you know, 10 little soldiers went somewhere and one of them, something happened and then there were nine. And then it keeps counting down. And each of the lines of the what happens to each soldier is something different. Something different happens to them in order for them to be to be there less of them. And the murderer decides to to kill these people in a way as the soldiers in the rhyme. So yeah, this Tony guy, I think the the line was that he was... Uh, he choked or something, so therefore he choked. Mm -hmm. With Ethel Rogers, who was the next uh, one to die, was that she overslept, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, she was, she actually like died, like o overnight, let's say. So it wasn't discovered until morning that she died. So yeah, and that keeps continuing on. So every time mm -hmm. 
we mention a character and the way they died, that's actually the way the rhyme goes too. How did you like that as a plot device? I mean, it was fantastic. And when you're reading it for the first time, I don't think you get it immediately. Like it, it doesn't mm -hmm. quite, it's not as immediate. But then when you read it, you know, afterwards, or maybe towards the end, you kind of go, oh, actually, this, this, this sounds like, you know, especially as some of the deaths are more obvious as per the line as others. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I think with Mrs. Rogers, the line is one overslept himself, and then there were eight. And I completely, I was like, oh, she just died in her sleep. And I didn't really think about the fact that, oh, yeah, she technically did oversleep because exactly. they all got up expecting breakfast and there was no breakfast, etc. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's definitely true. But it, it is quite clever. And I think that's maybe mm. what Christy meant when she said she was quite proud of it, that she not only managed to create a really cool mystery, but it's all these kind of really intricate details and every single word actually is part of the plot. I agree. I, I really liked it as a, as a plot device. So it was introduced in my edition. The whole poem is uh, at the beginning of the book before the story even starts. And then when, the, um, when all the characters are arriving at the island, they each have a copy of the poem in their bedroom. And there are also 10 little soldiers, like little figurines, on the dining table when they have dinner the first night. And then when the first one dies, Mr. Rogers, when he's taking everything away and he's putting stuff back in the kitchen, he realizes that now there are just nine little figurines left. And then by the time morning comes, there's only eight figurines left. And by that point, I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I thought it was really clever. Yeah. Um, obviously, all of the figures disappearing adds another layer of mystery because they're all accusing each other of or trying to watch each other to see who's getting rid of the figures. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Very clever. Have either of you read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Many years ago. Oh, I haven't psyched myself up for that one yet. Okay, well then I I won't really say much, but there were some elements that kind of cross over, which I also liked about that book. But generally, I feel like if if there's like some sort of a logic or like a plan, mm -hmm. I feel like it makes it a little bit scarier because you realize that this is completely premeditated. This person put in a lot of thought into what they were going to do and the order of events and then carried it out knowing, you know, it wasn't a crime of passion or anything. It was no planned from the beginning. It is actual psychopath behavior, serial killer behavior. It's really scary. Yep. Yeah. That, that's why I think the um, like TV and film interpretations of the book are also just as scary because if you get mm -hmm. that chilling feeling that somebody keeps watching you and you might die any second that just makes it even better so then madina do you want to tell us about the third person who was killed which is general macarthur general macarthur is uh a, an elderly gentleman uh who used to fight in one of the wars it does i don't think they specify which one it was but it was somewhere on the continent and uh, he is accused of sending his wife's lover, who was also a soldier, 
uh, on a mission that was basically a suicide mission. And essentially he killed him without killing him directly. Mm -hmm. So that's the accusation. And uh, General MacArthur is quite an interesting character in a sense that he seems to be the only one at peace with the killings. So he's the only one who's almost like welcoming uh, uh, this situation. He says so in the book. He says, you know, finally, uh, I've got my relief because he's been struggling throughout his life. You know, the the wife who, who was cheating on him died several years, years after her lover, etc. So he was all alone. And so his death was, he, 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 in the book, he went a bit like, he, he did go a bit batty. He was like, just, you know, in his own world. And the way he's killed is uh, with a blow to the back of his head. And he's discovered when the next day after the two, first two killings, everybody's gathering for lunch and they can't find him. And then they kind of go into a frenzy of finding him. Uh, they realize that he was sitting outside the whole time. They find him dead. And there's various characters within the book who are under suspicion because they either were seen speaking to him or were also walking outside. So it's all kind of like ramping up the drama of, okay, it's definitely one of us, of these 10 people who who's doing the killing and the line from the poem is eight little soldier boys traveling in devon one said he'd stay there and then there were seven which i thought was quite clever and i actually only just now pieced it together in my brain because he is the one who says we're never going to leave this island when he's sitting looking out at the sea as you've already said he's kind of come to to peace with what's going to happen. I think he fully expects that he will be killed on the island. So he is the one who says, we're just going to stay here. None of us will ever leave. And that's how it ties back to the poem, which was quite clever. But also, how could the murderer know that he would say something like that? Well, Well, actually, you know what? Uh, The other point is that... um, after his wife died and he left the army, he retired to Devon. He says so in the book. So, he, oh. yeah, so he doesn't, it's not far for him to travel to the island, I think, because he says something, mm-hmm. he says something about, because one of the interesting points of his character is that he's actually very paranoid that people will find out of what, that that's what he did. And he explains it how he, you know, retired to this sleepy village somewhere in Devon, something like that. So maybe, you know, that maybe that that is yet another uh, kind mm-hmm. of explanation of that line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I'm glad you've read it so many times because <laughs> it's, it's just adding so much more context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, despite the fact that I know who the murderer is, I, I don't mind rereading it because that's that kind of like, you know, that stress when you're reading a detective story, it's still there because it's so well written. So then, Corey, who's the next one to die? Okay, so the next one, well, the next one who actually dies is Mr. Rogers, and he is killed while chopping sticks for the fire. So all of the others get up and they realise that nothing has been done, nothing's been prepared, the fires aren't lit, um, and so they go out and find him. 
And the line there is one chopped himself in halves. No, seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves and then there were six. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I mean, like I say, I suspected him. So I was like, oh, okay, not him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's found the second morning, right? Yes. So the first morning it's his wife. Yes. Then General MacArthur dies during that day. Mm-hmm. And everyone's starting to be really suspicious. Everyone's getting quite nervous, quite scared. So they all lock themselves in their respective bedrooms. And Mr. Rogers moves from his room, which was in the attic, which is now where his dead wife's body is being kept. And he's put in like another room on a lower floor. Mm-hmm. And he's found dead the second morning because as Corey said the breakfast hasn't no break was breakfast prepared no it wouldn't have like... been it wouldn't have no? been i don't think i don't remember oh, okay okay so do they have breakfast and then they go find him no i think they go and look for him find okay. that he's dead and then all the women repair to the kitchen to do the do the yes. lady thing you know yeah no you're right you're right so that was pretty quick so in that case do you want to tell us who the fifth person is who dies then Corey? yeah so the fifth person is emily brent and she she's a really sort of religious fanatic um she's an older lady who is very much this is the way that things should be done and she has a very strong moral compass, the morals of which are slightly questionable. She is accused of dismissing her teenage maid because this girl gets herself pregnant and she's not married. And then the maid goes and drowns herself because she's lost her position. And again, sort of Emily Brent, she had no remorse about this. She's like completely justified in her while she shouldn't have been having sex out of wedlock. And um, she, Mm -hmm. she brought it upon herself is it her who sort of starts looking for bees whilst they're outside? No, that's Vera. That's no. okay, fine. So the the line of the poem is that six little soldier boys playing with a hive, a bumblebee stung one and then there were five. So while they're all sort of outside looking for Mr. Rogers, Vera then clocks that maybe it's related to the poem and that we should all be looking for a beehive and stay away from it because then one of us is going to get stung and die um which they all sort of completely dismiss and then as i say they go and have some sort of breakfast and all of the others leave uh emily brent in the drawing room or the dining room whatever it is because she's not feeling very well, so she's starting to feel a bit faint, and they they think, well, they'll just leave her there and go and... I can't remember exactly what they do. Can you tell that I'm suffering full, like, I just can't remember exactly what happened? That's okay. But anyway, then she spots a bumblebee in the, win- in the room, and at the same time starts sort of fading in and out of consciousness, and that is how the others find her. Yeah, what but have I missed? Fill but in it's the gaps. not. Yeah, but it's not. In fact, the a, a bee sting that kills her. It's no. 
yeah, it's an uh, it's actually in fact an injection because obviously the murderer wouldn't want to leave it to chance. Yes, yes, you're right. And and as she fades out of consciousness, that's she sort of identifies that there's somebody there and feels a prick in her neck. Is that what happens? Yeah. Yeah. So and she's also saying that as she's kind of fading in and out of consciousness in her mind, she thinks she hears the dripping of water and she kind of equates this to maybe it's like the spirit of the girl mm. who she, whom she fired mm. who drowned herself. At which point I was thinking that it's not someone on the island, that someone has swum to the island and is now behind her dripping water and stabs her with a needle that has a poison inside so that before i knew before i read it for when i was reading it for the first time i was convinced for the like the whole duration of the book that it was somebody from the outside yes that's yeah. exactly that's why i that's when i said i got it all completely wrong i was just like there has to be a cave or something that they didn't exactly. find when they searched the island <laughs> yeah because obviously the the characters are not stupid they did search the island and they kept searching mm. and 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 they did think it was somebody from the outside and even though they didn't find anyone it didn't convince me when i was reading it i was like i'm sure they've missed someone yeah. somebody in the walls and I suppose for anyone who is listening but hasn't read the book, there is a reason why they don't leave the island when this starts happening, why they're all just stuck there. And that is the fact that there is bad weather, there are storms happening. So the one boat that usually comes from the mainland every day to bring supplies cannot come because of the bad weather. So they are all actually stuck on the island and they cannot leave. Yeah. And which is why I thought that maybe the murderer was the boat captain, like the person who was supposed to be bringing them supplies, which is a character called Fred. And he's like a sailor. So I thought, OK, well, he can manage to to come even if the weather is bad. So surely it must be him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was. Yeah, because I, was thinking... I think. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Carry on. No, no, go ahead. The first morning after they find Ethel dead, the weather's good. Right, yeah. but the boat just doesn't come, and they they can't yeah. understand why not. Yeah, yeah, they were fully yes. expecting the boat, and it just didn't show up for no apparent reason. And one of the things that they were considering was to send a signal to the village, but it just happened that the location, the way it was set, the 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 village couldn't be seen from the from the actual island, so they couldn't even signal anyone. And obviously, in those times, no phones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty scary. Like, can I tell a personal story? Please do. Of course. Have any of you guys been to the Isle of Man? No. no. So I went with uh, one of my clo- close friends, Helen. Uh, we went to visit her father who lives there. And it was her dream to, to go visit, I think it's called the Calf of Man. Anyway, it's exactly the same setup as here. Like you've got an island and then there's like a tiny bitty island just off the coast of that one uh, where only a boat once a day comes. And this tiny little island is actually like a bird observatory. So there's literally just like one building that is like semi-inhabited by um, like actual scientists who who uh, check, check on the birds, etc. And you can go as like a tourist and it was so freaking scary because we were dr- we, we were brought in on a boat left there 
And then there was no phone signal. It was really bad. And you couldn't really see the village at all. And then um, there were like, you know, like really weird birds flying around, in, including like birds of prey. And then um, at one point, the storm, a storm was brewing. So we had to, we were thinking we'd have to delay our departure by one day. And I was claustrophobic. I, I like, I could not take it. I was full blown panic attack. Please get me off this island, please. And nothing was happening. <laughs> there was like rabbits <laughs> there. That's it. Amazing. So I can imagine that stress. It's like, it's scary that you cannot escape. Yeah. And I think me knowing this island in particular and knowing the like that that is where it was set, that ruined it a little bit for me because Burr Island, which is the island that this is supposed to be, is actually connected to the village by a beach when it's low tide. So you can just walk across and you can see the village and everything from from the hotel that is the house in the story. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I having that mental image definitely lost out on that isolation piece because I was just like, oh, they can just walk across the slipway. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, they couldn't. They couldn't because she right. took that bit out. But, um, yeah, that that wasn't positive for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. So they find Emily Brent dead, in her chair. Mm -hmm. Everyone is panicking, mostly Vera. Mm -hmm. We forgot to mention that when Vera kind of clocks onto what's happening, the fact that possibly the next murder might be via bee, and she's, you know, shouting on top of the hill, are there any bees on this island? The one doctor on the island decides that the best way to calm her down is to slap her across the face <laughs> because she's being hysterical. Yes. Yeah. Hysterical woman. <laughs> Yeah, quite. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as you can tell, Vera is one of the main characters uh, in a sense mm. that, you know, she's popular and young woman. Do we want to talk about her next, even since I've mentioned her, even though she's yeah. not the next one to die? Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, sure. Okay. So Vera Claythorne, she is a teacher slash secretary and she is on the island because she was sent a letter by an employment agency asking her to come to the island to work as a secretary there. And it was signed off by someone called Una Nancy Owen, whom she'd never met. She has no idea who this person is. And when the gramophone plays, she is accused of having killed a little boy called Cyril. And we find out that Cyril was a boy whom she was taking care of, I suppose, as a... Um, as a governess. What's the word? Um, that's the one, thank you. As a governess a few years ago, and he drowned. And she was in love with his older brother, Hugo. I think he was, he was the uncle, I think, or cousin or something. Some some male relation. Yeah. But the reason that she's accused of his murder is because he died while swimming to some rocks off the coast of wherever they lived, where he had been explicitly forbidden to ever go because the the tide and the currents in the water were quite dangerous. So 
he wasn't allowed to go there. And one morning she said that he could go swim there. And she kind of hoped that he would drown because if he dies, then Hugo as the next male in the family would actually inherit everything that he was supposed to inherit. Mm -hmm. So the little boy drowns. She's found innocent of his murder because she swims after him, but she doesn't get to him in time. Nevertheless, she is guilty because she did tell him that he could go swim there. And then Hugo leaves her because he kind of suspects that she had something to do with the little boy's death. So that's Vera. And she is, in fact, the last one to die because she hangs herself. Mm -hmm. And the line is, one little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself and then there were none. So she... Basically, what happens is <laughs> all the other people start dying <laughs> until there's just two people left. And it's Vera and another character called Philip Lombard. Yeah. And Philip is shot by Vera. Spoiler alert, we'll get to this later. And so then she's left all alone. And she thinks that because she's shot Philip, she has actually killed the murderer. So she'll now be safe. And she's feeling very tired. So she wants to go and sleep and wait until someone comes to the island to save her. And when she gets to her room, there is a rope with a noose hanging from the ceiling. And there is a chair underneath the rope, just set up by someone waiting for her. She is kind of going a little bit mad at this point, And she thinks that it's Hugo who has set up the whole thing and that Hugo wants her to kill herself because of the guilt that she feels over the death of Cyril. And so she does. Yeah. And that is the end of Vera. <laughs> what did we think of her? Yeah. Well, she is, well, one of the reasons, I guess, that she's like one of the more likable characters is that she, I guess, does seem to feel some kind of remorse at what she's done, even though, I mean... I think in many cases, it didn't really feel like remorse, but more like regret that she was then dumped by Hugo after she's done that for him. Mm-hmm. But like I said, like she's, you know, like one of those pretty little things. So she's likable in the book. Uh, she seems to have like a, like if you, if you, if you watch the BBC adaptation mm. with Charles Dance and the guy who played in The Hobbit and somebody else. You know, you can see that kind of tension, like they, they, they always, you know, in the film versions, they always insert her in some kind of romantic, um, you know, sexy triangle or sexy relationship type of thing. But yeah, it, it, it is quite clear that she has probably gone mad by the time she's killed Lombard, that she really like she is in no state of mind to, to survive really. Um, and that kind mm-hmm. of, image of that noose probably just like pushed her over the edge just yeah quite Mm. clearly she she knew that this was going to happen to her i found her well she as you say was kind of she didn't feel guilty about the fact that she'd encouraged this little boy to swim knowing that he would probably die and she 
justifies it quite a number of times as she's sort of reminiscing on it throughout the book as, yes, but I did try to save him and nearly drown myself and then she got rescued because she did, you know, try to swim out. But Hugo left her because he sort of clocked that she had, you know, not said no or something had happened. So I kind of found her a little bit troublesome because of that like just as in good good character development I suppose I found the the hanging herself a little bit unrealistic but like you say she did already think that she was she was being haunted or something so after Emily Brent dies they all go up to their or she goes up to her room because there's no electricity or whatever she goes up to her room there's no electricity and somebody has draped a length of seaweed over the hook um in her room that the rope is then put round for her to hang herself and she screams and everybody runs up except for somebody else and so that kind of sets the scene for the hanging later because We've already had that thing of, oh, there's a bit of seaweed and this is obviously related to the fact that that Cyril drowned. And so maybe that is definitely a part of her of her hanging herself. So, yeah, I don't know. I It's framed as an experiment on the killer's part to see whether or not she actually would hang herself or whether, you know, you could make somebody paranoid and and crazy enough by doing all of these things that they then just follow through what they think is supposed to happen next. I suspect that if she hadn't hanged herself, then another plan would have been put in place to make something happen. But I think it's the only part where I was like, mind you, sitting here robustly sane in my house, you know, with (laughs) absolutely no mysteries going on around me whatsoever, to be like, well, that that just wouldn't happen. I don't buy that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hmm. like throughout the book, you can tell that she is a survivor. The fact that she actually kills Philip, mm. you know, out of fear or I guess self-preservation in a way. She she has that kind of survivor instinct. But like exactly like you say, it's like an experiment on the psyche. Like we mm. could never tell what kind of thing was happening in her head. She just, I think mm. it was just a li- like literally the last straw. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean... She'd obviously already been guilty of a death. Then nine people have seemingly died by mysterious, suspicious circumstances because of some serial killer on the island where she is. She has just killed someone in self-defense, as you've already said. So I can I can imagine that she would have just snapped. And I'm trying to remember now... I feel like it's just so sinister what uh, the killer was doing to her specifically in mm-hmm. trying to get her to kill herself. Because when they arrive and she first moves into her room, there is no mention of there being a hook in the ceiling, as far as I remember. No, just the, just the poem. Then there is suddenly a hook in the ceiling that she'd never noticed before. Then there is the seaweed. And then there is the noose with the chair. So it just keeps building. And it's, mm. now that I think about it, I didn't really consider it when I was reading it. But as we're talking about it, it's so sinister and so evil what this guy is doing to her. Like he is just trying to drive her absolutely insane. 
Yeah, because the clock that comes into play later also comes from her room. Mm, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's chilling. But before this happened, did either of you suspect that she might be the killer? No. Not really, no. No, me either. She was just a bit too stressed out about the whole situation. I, I, mm. And it didn't feel like she was a good enough actress, I guess, in the book to... I don't know because yeah. because you obviously in, while you're reading the book it's it's almost like you're reading their internal monologues a little bit, so it didn't ever occur to me that she would be the one. So who do we want to talk about next then? Well, the the guy she killed, I guess. Yeah. So Corey, do you want to tell us about Philip? Sure. So Philip Lombard, he was a soldier, and he stole food from some East African tribesmen that he was working with and then abandoned them to die. So that's the accusation. He is really suspicious to everybody else because he turns up on the island with a revolver and there is not a gun culture in this country. So anybody having a revolver on them, you know, it it's sort of... It might have been more common back then, but it really puts everybody on edge because they are really like, why have you come to this luxury island and brought your revolver with you? And then he says at some point um, that he was to- he was instructed to bring it in the letter that he received. But nobody really believes that. And a lot of shenanigans go on with the revolver. So it goes missing at one point and then they all search each other's bedrooms and they do a full search of the house and they even make everybody strip off except for Vera who by this point is the only woman left so she gets to put some skin tight clothes on which is very (laughs) salacious and um and then the revolver's not found then somebody is shot and then the revolver is found again and he sort of he sort of explains to them that he just found it in his bedside table again which of course nobody believes so I think that's how it sort of comes to the point where Vera shoots him because they've been in this really high tension environment and it's only the two of them left and the revolver, it's on the beach. I can't remember how it ends up on the beach. But anyway, she picks up and shoots him because it's only them left and she she thinks, well, it's not me, so it's got to be him and shoots him. Exactly. Yeah, I I think for somebody who sort of stuck around the second longest in the story, I found him quite unmemorable, really. He, I think he sort of ganged up with the doctor mm-hmm. um, and they, they went around trying to solve this together and sort of trusting each other. But... I would say all of the other characters, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember quite a lot about them, you know, and and they stick in my mind for whatever reason. But I'm not really, I don't know. He was just a bit bland. Mm -hmm. He was. And um, one of the interesting things about him, he was, um, I think, right at the beginning, he admitted to the the murder of the people in in, in Africa. Uh, He doesn't again, feel any remorse. He kind of went, well, I had to do it to survive type of thing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's just another, um, 
a very clear sign of, of, of racism and the racism of the times. Mm. You know, he, he just kind of is, again, I guess in... Uh, like like an element or like an example of the, of the times or the the way people thought mm. at the time uh but of course he was still accused of murder mm. he he's not very memorable in the book but if like i mentioned like if you watch the bbc adaptation aiden turner is the name of the guy aiden turner plays him in uh no. in the bbc adaptation and you kind of just watch just because of him, because he's just gorgeous, isn't he? And uh, <laughs> of course, you know, when you when you watch the series, he's he's obviously memorable. Uh, but yeah, in the mm-hmm. book, he's super suspicious. He he and the um, the other guy, uh, Bowl, what's his name? Yeah, Blore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are kind of like those were always like if uh, I always thought it was somebody from the outside. If I if I were to give like a guess of who it would have been out of the 10 people, I would have said either him or Bloor because they were both super mm. suspect. Yeah, and I think the, one of the other things is that he's described as being a soldier of fortune, mm-hmm. which I didn't understand when I read it. And it, it's basically a mercenary, so a gun mm-hmm. for hire. So he's a, he's a man of sort of slightly, you know, he doesn't really care who he kills or what the, the cause he's fighting for is as long as he gets paid well enough for it. Exactly. And he was paid to come to the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was hired by someone to spend a week on the island, basically. But yeah, he very clearly feels no remorse about what he's done. He even justifies it as saying, natives don't mind dying, you know, they don't feel about it as Europeans do. Which is like, come on, what are we even doing here? But yeah, so... He was shot by Vera because they were the last two to survive. But as Corey already said, and Madina Yu as well, he kind of conspires, well, not conspires, but like he he teams up with different people leading up to his death, trying to find out who the killer is. So he's one of the people who searches the whole island to see what's going on. And then when the doctor goes missing, him and Blore go out and again search the island to find the doctor. So he is quite active in trying to figure out what happens. I don't know if I ever actually suspected him of being the murderer, though. Because I think the whole time I was really just convinced that it's someone off the island. Mm -hmm. So even when it was just him and Vera, I didn't believe it was either one of them. And, but I could kind of tell what was going to happen. Like, as soon as the gun came out and they were struggling to get the gun one from the other, it was clear that there was going to be some sort of accident, that the gun was going to go off and one of them was going to be killed. I kind of thought it was going to be Vera who was going to be shot, not the other way around. But either way, it didn't really surprise me the way that he died. Again, also interesting because that's really the murderer leaving a lot to chance with that thing because it could have been the other way around it could have been vera who was shot and then Mm. the obviously the last soldier standing uh, having to hang himself i wonder how the killer would have pulled that one out but yeah again (laughs) that's yeah that's a good point that's a good point yeah so madina you've mentioned mr blore oh yes do you want to tell us about mr blore Sleazy, sleazy man. Uh, so former 
policeman who I believe accused someone. Uh, he, um, when he was uh, on the stand in court, he lied about somebody who was being accused of something, um, and the person was then found guilty. And I believe he, the the person then, uh, yeah, sentenced to life in prison where he died. Uh, so essentially, you know, Bloor was not going, doing a very good job at being a policeman. And because of him, a person died in prison. And, Mm -hmm. uh, by the time we, uh, he is in obviously this book, he's no longer a policeman, but he's more like a, like a private detective. And again, he was like hired into, into being a guest, uh, also by an unknown person. He is particularly kind of sleazy in the books because of, again, the way he's described and the way he speaks. He's quite aggressive, but like really weaselly uh, in a way. He, he, he would definitely be like, yeah, yeah he, you'd, you'd think he, would, he was the killer because he's, um, he does take an active part in trying to figure out what is happening. But you keep thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe he's doing it, you know, just to kind of um, avoid suspicion and that kind of stuff. And he, I think he's quite significant in a sense that he he tries to figure out who the killer actually is. Like you can you can tell that he's he he's very good at it. And so he dies. The the person to die before uh, Philip and Vera. Uh, and the way he dies is that uh, a um, bear-shaped clock is dropped on his head. And uh, the reason for that is because uh, that's the line in the in the rhyme. I can read it. It says, three little soldier boys walking in the zoo, a big bear hugged one, and then there were two. And that's kind of what happens to him. And yeah, he's also particularly suspicious because we meet him when he's on the train on the way to the station and he's sort of sitting there like deciding who he's going to be when he reaches the island. So ah, he tries, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. And he tries to pass himself off as South African and he, he's like, well, I've, you know, I've been to South Africa recently, so I know enough to get by. And then somebody else who's actually knows a lot about South Africa is like, you're not South African. And then yeah, he has yeah. to sort of <laughs> explain himself. Yeah. So yeah. So he introduces himself as a uh, Mr. Davis or something like that, or David or something yeah. like that. And, um, but when the gramophone recording goes, obviously he's named as Bloor, as Mr. As Mr. Bloor, not Davis. And that's kind of when everybody goes, wait a minute, who are you? So yeah. it is, yeah, he is very suspicious from the start. Mm. So, and Corey, you kind of alluded to this before, the clock that's dropped on his head is dropped from Vera's windowsill. And it's a clock that she had in her room. And at this point, it's all super suspicious because it's only supposed to be Bloor, Philip and Vera who are alive. Philip and Vera are sitting on a hill somewhere on the island because at this point, Vera's too scared to go back into the house. So Bloor goes to the house to get some food and then he never comes back. So who dropped the clock on his head? What is going on? The other two people are together, so it can't have been either of them. So what happened there? Yeah. Mm. Interesting, interesting. 
And we're inching towards two remaining characters. <laughs> yes. So, Corey, choose. Do you, well, there's only one person who is not the killer. Yeah. So. so, so I, Dr. Armstrong, who is, he's, he's obviously a doctor. Again, I can't quite remember how he gets onto the island. He's invited to stay by UN Owen. Yeah. He's um he's hired because he's a lady doctor. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he's uh like yeah. hired to like examine the the wife of the owner or something like that. Right, okay, fine. Yeah. All right. And the accusation from him is that he operated on a patient and she died and when she shouldn't have done. And quite early on he is reminiscing about the gramophone recording and all of that. And it becomes really obvious that he would routinely perform operations while drunk. And therefore there were a number of people who died when they shouldn't have done because he was not fit to be operating on them. And there's a strong code of ethics within the doctor circles where if they all know that one of them is behaving unethically they don't tell on him because then he might protect them later on when they've done something wrong so i found him like he comes across as quite bumbling mm. and also highly suspicious because he uh he gives mrs rogers some brandy when she's had her little faint and then he he tell or maybe he doesn't give her the brandy but he tells them all that he's given her a sleeping thing and then she dies in her sleep. And um, he's obviously the doctor. So when Emily Brent gets injected um, and they find this sign of a hypodermic needle injection site, it must be the doctor because obviously he's the one who's got it all in his bag. But yeah, he just comes across as being like quite just, I don't know, like entitled, but also not really aware, self-aware, or or not even aware of being, like, having the kind of caring, responsible nature that you would expect a doctor to have. Which mm. I guess is also maybe quite an old-fashioned thing where doctors were, they were basically businessmen, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, the the whole point is that he does sound a bit, I guess in a way stupid, but mostly narcissistic. Yeah. He's just like so obsessed with himself and his image that he doesn't care how many people he killed. He doesn't mm. really... Like, you don't get from him, even though he's in like that tri trio of trying to solve and, and find who who the killer is, you don't feel like he's doing it to protect others. He's just like doing it to protect himself and, and yeah, get off the island. Yeah, to prove his own innocence, basically. Yeah, and, um, he's just, yeah, he's not, yeah, he's he's just weird. He, he He's not likable to me in any way. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think for me, he was probably the least sympathetic character. Mm. I didn't care for him at all. I was a little bit suspicious of him because of what Corey has already said, the fact that he is the doctor and so he would be the one who would ha have access to the chemicals or like the poisons that were used to kill um, Mrs. Rogers and Emily Brent. Uh, and, and the first guy as well. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, the first guy was also poisoned. But when it's... Uh, so he's in the last four. So there is one more character that we haven't talked about yet who mm. is obviously going to be the killer. But when it's the five of them, they decide that they should put any potential weapons away that they should lock them up in like a small safe and one person has access to the key to the safe and one person has the key to the room where the safe is being kept so all of his needles and all of his medicine is put away so then nobody dies by poisoning which it might also be like a cause for suspicion mm. but he dies in the night because when it's just the four of them, him, Mr. Bloor, Philip, and Vera, they all agreed that they're going to lock themselves in their room and nobody should leave their rooms. But Mr. Bloor can't fall asleep and he feels like he hears footsteps outside of his room. So he opens the door and he sees the doctor leaving the house. And at this point he goes to get Philip they tell Vera to just stay in the room and to not open the door unless it's either one of them together telling her to open the door. They go outside, but they can't find the doctor because... Why, Corey? How is How does he die? Uh, he's been pushed off a cliff. Yes. But they don't... They think that he is the culprit. So they now think that he's the murderer and he's hiding... So they're busy searching for him towards the end of the book because because they don't know that he's died. And um, the line for him is four little soldier boys going out to sea, a red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. And the, I think this was my favourite way of adapting the, um, the poem because the red herring could be so many different things. You know, it could be the fact that the murderer himself has made... The, arm, uh, the doctor a red herring by sort of making him look like the one who's doing it all or the red herring that is actually explained within the book I think is uh, you're going to have to correct me here I think but that he's he's gone outside and therefore they think somebody has died when actually they haven't so that's how, how they choose to apply it to the rhyme within the story itself but obviously then when the explanation comes later it's different the red herring is, is intended to be something else. So, and then the fact that he is pushed into the sea, so he could be swallowed up by a fish or, you know, whatever, like however you choose to metaphorically take <laughs> that. That was my literal explanation for it. Yeah. <laughs> but clearly, yeah. I, th I think it was just the term red herring is so open to interpretation and then what actually happens to him and the intentions of it. I think that for me was like, this is really clever. Can you briefly explain what a red herring is for anyone who doesn't know? So a red herring is supposed to be something that leads you off on the wrong track. So it might be, so for example, you would say that it's a red herring that he is the murderer because we have been led to believe that he is the only one who has all of the relevant drugs and the experience to be able to inject somebody with a hypodermic needle. And then he goes missing after um, everybody else has died, they haven't found his body yet when Bloor is crushed by the marble clock. So they think, Vera and Philip think at that point that he is maybe 
hiding in the house and has waited for one of them to come down and then push the clock onto him. So, and as the reader, you might also think that, and it's only when Bloor's body is, uh, sorry, Armstrong's body is found, that that it's then you realise you've been led off on the wrong track. So it's like, it's misdirection, basically. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a very, very common device in uh, the famous five books were really well known for it by Enid Blyton like there were always little things chucked into them so that when you were trying to solve it yourself you couldn't because you you never knew what was a red herring and what wasn't so again a, a, a very clever thing for for the author to do so that leaves us with the last person on the island or the last of the original 10 who came to the island, and that is Mr. Justice Wargrave. Shall I introduce him, or do, do it. you guys want to do it? Do it. Okay, do it. so I think he's the first character we're actually introduced to in the book, and he's traveling to the island first class in the smoking carriage. He is a retired judge, and he was sent a letter by a woman called Constance Culmington, whom he knew at some point, and she is inviting him to the island to kind of catch up after many years. And he's a little bit of a sexist slash misogynist, in my (laughs) opinion, based on some of the stuff that happens in the book. And when the gramophone plays, he is... Um, accused of wrongfully sentencing a man to die. Therefore, he was responsible for the man's murder because the man was then executed and the accusation is that he was innocent. This man, his name was Seton, and despite the fact that he was innocent, that him as the judge kind of swayed the jury to make them believe that he was in fact guilty and that's why he was then sentenced to death so he is he kind of takes control of the situation when the people start dying as the kind of as the judge he's trying to solve what's going on he's hypothesizing about who might have a motive to kill everyone and who is actually this mysterious person who has invited everyone to the island who signs off as un owen so he is now called Mr. Unknown because it sounds like you and Owen sounds like unknown. And he is seemingly the sixth person to die because after Mrs. Emily Brent is stung by the hypodermic needle, that is when there is now five people left. Vera goes upstairs she finds the seaweed in her room. She screams, and four people, four, one, two, three, sorry, three men run upstairs to see what's going on. And they realize that the justice is not with them. And then they all go downstairs and they find him in the dining room with the judge's wig that judges in the UK wear. And he has, like, a red cape, is it? It's a curtain. Um, Which is the shower curtain (laughs) that's gone missing as well. And he 
has seemingly been shot in the head and is dead. Pronounced dead by the doctor, who is the only one who examines his body. And so we are all led to believe that he was murdered, that he was shot. His body is taken upstairs and left in his bedroom. But then we find out that he was the murderer all along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very. So clever. what did you guys think of, of this whole thing? Well, you would never guess that, I guess maybe that's me being ageist, but the way that he's described in the book, like he looks essentially like a turtle. He's very elderly. He'd be the last person you'd think that would actually be going around murdering people. And also, you know, he's like a judge. So maybe that's another stereotype where you kind of go, oh, is somebody like that really going to be a, a, a murderer? But actually, when you think about it a bit later, you kind of go, okay, that makes sense because he's so used to, to you know, accusing people or not not accusing, but sentencing people to death or sentencing people to whatever prison that that's essentially him doing that in real life that whatever people he would have sentenced in court he and couldn't he just sentenced and and life to death yeah i think um he again the poem here it requires you to know a little bit about british law basically um, mm-hmm. so the line is five little soldier boys going in for law, one got in chancery, and then there were four. And chancery is, or it used to be an institution which had power over common law, so that change wasn't made too slowly. So the way that the law works is the common law is like the accepted, basically, like if you were to, if you were living with your partner, and were, to all intents and purposes, husband and wife, except for the fact that you didn't have a bit of paper saying that you were husband and wife, then under common law, you are husband and wife, because for anything but that bit of signed paper, you are. And and chancery was introduced to make sure that law wasn't just dictated by the way we've always done things, basically, because that's essentially what common law is. It's like... You know, this is the way it's always been done and therefore. So I guess it's a way of making sure that justice is, you know, always performed. And the oh, the whole reason Mr. Justice Walgrave has chosen these nine other people for his plot is because they've never received justice in the way that he believes them responsible. Because they've all either been acquitted or... It's never been found out because there was not there wasn't enough evidence to prove anything or or anything like that. So he's very deliberately gone out and um, found these people. And again, the red herring here, which <laughs> applies to the doctor, is that the doctor and him make this pact where he says to the doctor, "Well, why don't we make it look like I've been shot, and then I can go around the island and double check to see." who's actually murdering everybody and then when um the doctor leaves and um Bloor and Lombard see him leaving it's actually that the justice has told him to meet him outside 
so that they can then, you know, discuss Plot. what's actually going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he's, and then that's when he's pushed off the cliff. So, yeah, uh, just an incredibly fascinating. Uh, I, I don't know how she would have thought all of that up. And the amazing thing is that you think the book has finished because they're all dead, mm-hmm. but then you have like the epilogue. And the epilogue is the police basically trying to solve the murders of yeah. who did it. Yeah. And they can't figure it out either. So when I was reading it, I was like, I was going through the pages. I was reading it. It's like, well, there's only one page left and they still haven't said who the killer is. So does this mean that we just don't find out who it is? And that is kind of seemingly what happens until we then have another chapter, which is basically his signed confession, where he has written out this letter, basically explaining how he did everything. And he's put it in a bottle and just thrown it out to sea or something because he's being whimsical or whatever. And he's justified it as, you know, he's ever since he was quite young he had had this urge to kill people but because he knew it was morally wrong he never did it until he reached a certain age and I think he had like a terminal illness or something so he was like okay well I'm going to die anyway but before I die I want to to kill someone because I have this urge because I'm a psychopath but I don't want to kill an innocent person. So as Corey already said, I'm going to find people whom I think are guilty, but they never receive justice. And so I will kill them so that justice is served in some way. Yeah. And he's come up with this whole plot of how to get them all to the island and how to kill them all one by one. And uh, obviously he kills, kills himself as well. Yes. And the death, that is planned for him is he was shot in the head. So that was easy for him to recreate himself. Um, yes. And that's why it's not suspicious to the police, obviously. Yes. Yeah, because the other very important thing is that when Vera hangs herself, she obviously, she's, she stands up on the chair, she puts the noose around her neck, and then she kicks the chair from out under her. So we would expect that the chair would be lying on the floor, fallen over, but it's a- it's actually been put in the corner of the room by someone. So evidently someone came into the room afterwards and put the chair away, which is also what misleads the police because they're thinking, well, everybody's supposed to be dead by now mm. because Vera was keeping a diary as well where she was you know, listing when everybody died. So who was this mysterious person who came in and put the chair away? Obviously, it's the justice. and But then it's also confused because he doesn't have the fingerprints on the gun. So, yeah, mm. it's all... Well, they um, the, the reader is misled because Vera is still holding the gun when she, after she's shot Philip. And she walks yeah. up the stairs and there's a line where it very clearly says that she's dropped the gun. And then the police yes, yes. reference finding it on the carpet. So then there's this really little, clever little explanation of how he's managed to use a bit of elastic to make sure that the gun 
after he's been shot, recoils and flings herself back out into the into the hallway, um, so that the police just have no idea what happened. I mean, the detail. <laughs> The amount of detail in this tiny book, really quite small. What do you think about the the fact that there is a reveal? Well, would, like, would you be as satisfied with the book if you didn't know who had done it? Of course, I wouldn't. That's the whole point with the Agatha Christie's, because the 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 whole point of reading them, they're all quite short. Uh, all of them are like this this length, and. Um, the whole point is the satisfaction of finding out who the killer is at the end. And of course, you know, with, with many books, and then after you kind of read a lot of these, uh, especially for Cruel Poirot and Miss Marple, you get, I, I guess, good at guessing who it could potentially be. You at least get it, you know, whittled down to two people or so. But with this one, why this one is particularly popular is because there is no such detective. So it's very hard to guess um, who the killer is. And therefore... You know, like it, it just wouldn't be fun if you didn't know. Like, what would you do? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I usually don't like it when there has to be this convoluted explanation at the end of the book because I feel like I've just been, you know, that, that, that the author has just flung all of these red herrings at me to use a term from the book. <laughs> And that usually frustrates me. Like, I, I want to be able to figure out who the killer is. I do appreciate when I don't, because then I think, oh, this, this is really clever. And in this case, it is really clever. And I, I liked that there was that reveal at the end, because I was really frustrated when we reached the end of the police discussion, and there's still no mention of who the actual <laughs> killer was. So I'm glad that we got an explanation May I don't know if I liked how it was brought in. Maybe it would have I would have maybe liked it a bit more if the police had figured it out mm. in some way instead of get getting like the the full evil monologue basically from the killer. <laughs> but but I'm glad that we found out. Mm. I'm glad we got an answer. I, I like it. What it's about you, Corey? Super dramatic. <laughs> yeah, it's, I am. Um, I'm sort of the same, Lucia. Like normally, I don't like the monologue at the end of the book. But I think, A, the context that we have from our resident Agatha Christie uh, <laughs> uh, expert, uh, that's really interesting to know that there's that it's you know quite a common theme with Agatha Christie, but also the fact that this book was written in 1939, and all of the big evil monologue that I have experienced probably derives from this style, whether Agatha Christie herself invented it or whether it was just a... A, a thematic thing at the time except it really works because the way that she's done it is so clever and it's so intricate and it's it it's not just lazy writing it's so fundamental to the book whereas I think often a lot of the big reveals that we get they are just lazy writing because the author can't find a you know another more satisfying way of revealing what's happened so I, I was kind of a little on edge about it as well. And I think I didn't like that it was a little message in a bottle. But, uh, but yeah, I am glad we found out because I think the five stars would have very rapidly become 
one or two because you don't get any resolution or satisfaction. It's not a book that you sort of, you, w- you wouldn't close it and go, oh, that was amazing. You'd just be like, that's so annoying. I can't believe I've mm-hmm. just read that whole book and I still don't know who did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I do, you know, I do genuinely like it. And I do recommend watching the, at least the BBC adaptation where um, the, uh, the, the killer, the judge is played by, Char- by Charles Dance. And he's fantastic, obviously. And this was after Game of Thrones, I think. So, you know, he was already kind of like seen as sinister. So him... Who's he? He's um, uh, Lannister. He's the, you know, father Lannister. What's his name? Ah, he's amazing. He's an amazing actor. He's an amazing actor. And they cast him in this. And obviously I already knew he was the killer, but it was like, you're... Like for people who don't know the end, you're like really giving it away because he's mm. he is you know typecast as a sinister type of person. So it's like, mm-hmm. mm. uh, but yeah, he's really good in it as well. Is it is it a show or is it a movie? I think it's a a, a short show. I think they cut it into a couple of episodes, not many, but yeah, it, it's cool. It's it, it it does the book justice. That's for sure. So, is there anything else that we haven't already mentioned or discussed about the book? Gosh, for such a short book, there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had one thing, which was just that, again, just thinking about how limited it was limited your ability to research things was back then compared to now where you just have Wikipedia or you know the the entire library on the internet Agatha Christie served in hospital dispensaries during World War Two, mm. so that's how she got a lot of her knowledge about the poisons and all of those contemporary ways of killing people which I thought was I was a little sus when I was reading it about how she knew what all of these things were. I was thinking, God, she's really some dog. I mean, obviously she's a crime (laughs) novelist, but, you know. And then it all made a lot more sense when I actually read the Wikipedia page and and saw that that's um, that's where she got that knowledge from. Well, she does it in not obviously just this book. She does it in all the books. Like, it's, Mm. yeah, there's always murder by some kind of poison. Okay, that's interesting. So I'm curious then, I thought it was someone off the island for a long time, until the very end. Mm-hmm. Madina, you also thought it was someone off the island. Yeah, crawling, cre- creepy cl- crawling through caves or something. So was it was it the same for you as well, Corey? Like when yeah. it was just the two of them at the end, did you still think it was someone else? Yes, I I... I sort of, by that point, was like, well, they've just gone nuts and they are now just killing each other. And it was a little bit of a psychological experiment, like happens in the the book with Piggy. Um, um, Piggy? Oh, Jesus God, what's Christ. it called? It's another classic. Um, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the oh, Flies, yes. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, by the end of it, I was like, this is a Lord of the Flies situation. But at the beginning, I was just like, there was no way. Especially, I was a little suspicious of Mr. Justice Wargrave. Just at the beginning, because he was sort of directing the mm-hmm. op- directing the um, investigation. 
And I was like, well, you know, he's like the fat spider in the middle pulling all the strings, which is what he was. But exactly what he but, was. but then he but then he died. So and I was like, well, well maybe if I th- yeah. That's what I, I thought. I thought he died because he was getting close. Like maybe he was you know, but then yeah, it was such a long time ago that I've read it for the first time, so I, I don't even remember, mm. but that that's kind of like that's that would be my first thought okay he's died because he's getting close to the to finding out who it is and I genuinely mm. thought it was somebody from the outside and then if I were to pick somebody out from inside I would have picked Bloor mm. don't know why mm-hmm. even though he probably doesn't have a motive but still <laughs> I think I did believe that it was the doctor until after Philip and Vera find Bloor has died by the marble bear falling on his head they then also spot the doctor's body on the beach where he's been washed up and and at that point i was just like not a clue <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah maybe an important thing to also note when the two policemen are discussing who it might be uh, after everyone has already been killed they do mention that even when the weather was nice and the ship or like a boat could have come to the island, they didn't because the inhabitants of whatever town it is on mm. the shore were told specifically to stay away, that there is something mm. happening on the island. It's like some kind of an experiment or something and they should just ignore them, pretend they're not there. Even if they see like a signal or a cry for help or anything, they shouldn't go. Mm. And that's why nobody actually goes for so many days, which was extra sinister again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Well, <laughs> I think we've said literally all there is to say. <laughs> so thank you very much, Madina, for choosing this book. And what a, an amazing way to round off this season. Mm. I think this is... The second book only that we've both given five stars to, Corey, this season. I can't even remember, to be honest with you. I think so. Makes me feel proud. <laughs> so a really, really good way to mm. to finish this off. So thank you again for coming on to be our guest today. Thank you for having for me. This is so cool. Longest <laughs> episode. <laughs> and... By the time this airs, Corey, you will have a five-month-old, which is insane. I know. <laughs> but this is being recorded in the middle of December, so you are still very heavily pregnant. Uh, yes. <laughs> but you are taking a break yeah. from the podcast. You're going on mat leave. So we don't have a clear idea of what the next episode is going to be at this point. So we're just going to leave this here and... As always, we keep you updated on our Instagram mm-hmm. at Reading Materials Pod or on our website. So if you want to have up to date information, go check it out. But yeah, Corey, good luck for the last three weeks. Thanks. <laughs> so excited to meet yeah. the little baby. Yeah. And thank you again, Madina. And yeah, I think we'll wrap it up here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been lovely great way to end (laughs) exactly yes so thank you madina and Corey. we are still going to record two more episodes yeah so i will talk to you in three days yes (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) Uh, yeah 
Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.